Weathering is a wonderful word for a terrible thing. It means that if you are someone who is having to suffer from constant insults, even when you're trying really hard, uh, Dr. Geronimus, who is at the University of Michigan, she calls it hard effort coping, just trying to get by. But then things get in your way. People treat you badly. People say things that are unkind to you, or you're discriminated against by the police at your job or in housing. Each time that happens to you, it causes the fight or flight mechanism to kick in. So then something happens, you get really upset, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, your body is flooded with stress hormones, your muscles tighten. If that happens over and over because of these constant insults, it causes your body to prematurely age. Chapman University's Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences and Past Forward present Engaging the World, leading the conversation on health equity. In this series, we explore the historical, cultural, social, and economic disparities that interfere with the access to health and healthcare, and examine how these challenges can exist in one of the most wealthy and technologically advanced nations in the world. We engage with journalists, historians, artists, activists, and educators to look at accessibility, cost, prejudice, and the human experience of healthcare in America as we look for the pathways to health equity. In this episode, we connect with journalist and author Linda Villarosa to discuss her book, Under the Skin, which explores the inequities of health and the healthcare system people of color, specifically black people, face here in the U.S. Here is Linda Villarosa. Linda, what I really appreciated while reading your book, Under the Skin, along with how informative it was and, and these heart-wrenching human stories that you included, it's, it's that you acknowledged your own preconceived notions or, or bias in relation to health disparities of African-Americans. And that really allowed me as a reader to feel like I was learning with you as opposed to just being taught or, or lectured to. I I don't think I did that on purpose. I think that as I was going through how to structure the book, I was doing it chronologically. Hmm. You know, like here's when I here, here's my story and using it chronologically. And then I realized, wait, my trajectory has really changed. And that's why the first basically chapter is called Everything I Thought Was Wrong. Hmm. Because I had preconceived notions. I also, I think it was good to acknowledge that because a lot of journalists are arrogant and it seems like you've just woke up and understood everything perfectly, which is generally not true. And um, I was grateful to uh, be able to share my own vulnerability in this in order to show other people, like you said, you it's okay if you had a preconceived notion. Even I did, and I'm the author of the book. Yeah, and I think it's really important to to start from that place. We all have a lot to learn, and we're we're hopefully, ideally, constantly evolving. Um, but I, I I think to to get this out of the way, I think we need to the address the the challenge and dangers of of fusing race and class together when covering health disparity. I mean, you touched that 
first thing in the book, but I, I think that's the, the most important thing to get out of the way, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, um, I agree with that. And for so long, the, the, the preconceived notion was when you looked at racial health disparities from birth, including maternal mortality, where a Black birthing person is three to four times more likely to die or almost die, infant mortality, where a Black baby is two and a half times more likely not to survive, all the way to the end of life, and you're looking at life expectancy, and Black people live, used to be three and a half years less, and after COVID, six years less. So you're looking at those statistics, and you're thinking, and I was thinking, oh, this is because there is so much poverty in America among Black Americans, and that is what the problem is. Then I actually did two things, looked at the poverty rate for when I was born. So in the, you know, 1959. So 60% of Black Americans were living under the poverty line at that point. Then after the civil rights movement, 40%. And now it's about 19% of Black Americans live under the poverty line, which is high and unconscionable. However, even though there's been that precipitous drop in poverty and the rise of a robust middle class, um, you haven't seen the gaps narrowing. And sometimes they've been widening in racial health disparities, like in life expectancy. Why is you know Black people living so fewer years? So if it were just poverty, you would have seen those two lines parallel dropping, but you didn't. And in fact, also maternal mortality has gotten worse. Um, the other thing is there have been cases that are really high profile, like Serena Williams. So Serena Williams almost had a tragic birth outcome with her first baby. She just had another one who's fine, but um, with her first baby and she, um, doctors ignored her legitimate complaints and requests about the kind of care she knew she needed to receive. So she was basically shut down. So if someone like Serena Williams, who is very rich, knows her body really well, whose husband is really rich, cannot get care, proper care, then something is wrong beyond just class. The other thing to say is that in those maternal mortality statistics, a Black um, birthing person with a master's degree or more is more likely to die or almost die during childbirth or the first month of, you know, the first months after she's had her baby than a white woman with an eighth grade education. So if education and later studies have shown even rich people like Serena Williams die or almost die. So if education and wealth do not protect you, then this cannot be just a case of poverty. You talk a lot about the disparity. A lot of it comes from healthcare practice and study. And I'd, I'd love for you, again, we don't have a lot of time and there's so much to get out of this book and, and, and your research. But will you share some of the outdated and flawed beliefs of the physiology of black bodies and, and how detrimental they are to the healthcare of African Americans? Well, I think one that is still in practice and um, is worrisome, really two, I covered them in the book and in the 1619 project. So the first one is that we have black people have um, low lung function. And so that was a myth that began during enslavement to show that it was good for enslaved people to work in the fields because it would make them healthier. So that was created 
intentionally by white physicians and scientists, many of whom owned people, owned slaves. And then the through line to today is there's a machine called the spirometer and the spirometer still has a race correction. And I asked a physician friend of mine, what, how do you, how does it work? So the spirometer measures lung function. There's a switch you flip that is, you know, if you're with a black patient, you flip that switch and it gives a deficit of like something like 10 or 15% less lung function. This is really personal to me. I grew up in Colorado. That's where I'm from. I ran track there. I, you know, Mile High City, I have great lung function still. I was just there. I was at 13,000 feet and I was like walking up a hill. <laughs> um, so to correct by, a, you know, this false idea from way back is ridiculous. And the other one is that black people, the opposite kind of, the one is you're, you have a worse thing. This is, we have a high pain threshold. So really superhuman intolerance to pain, again, to justify cruel treatment during slavery. The through line to today is surveys have shown that um, medical students, residents, physicians still believe myths about um, black people, including that one. So that gets in the way of proper treatment. I had this funny conversation with someone who said, oh, maybe that's why the opioid crisis is really affecting white people because they've been over-medicated um, or given more pain management. And I said, well, cruelly, if people, Black people aren't getting enough pain medicine, that's terrible. If white people are getting over-medicated, that's terrible. But whatever it is, is Black people shouldn't have to suffer because of a myth that began you know, 400 years ago. Mm. You also mentioned kidney function, and uh, uh, I, I'm going to mess up because I'm definitely not a, a medical expert, but uh, on a kidney function test that there was an adjustment that they made for, for Black people as well. Yes, I got my kidney function test back from my checkup um, about six months ago, and I was like, oh my God, I was race corrected. So uh, the kidney function test assumes that um, Black people have slightly better kidney function. So that means, and it's based on the idea that we have more muscle mass as a group. So it doesn't take into consideration individuals like somebody like Arnold Schwarzenegger, or Aaron Rodgers, or somebody who's really built compared to a skinny person like me, or like a skinny dude like Barack Obama, would have less <laughs> muscle mass. So why would we need this correction? Um, the, the sad part is it could keep Black people who actually suffer kidney disease more off um, certain treatments and definitely off kidney um, transplant lists. Mm -hmm. so that is a myth that this correction um, the kidney function test correction is a myth that has stuck around even today under the false idea that there's some difference in muscle mass. It's crazy that this is still medical professionals who went to school forever are that these are still propagated. But in addition to that, I think that the most aha moment in your book was when I got to Dr. Arlene Geronimus's concept of weathering. This is this is the moment where I was like, oh my gosh, it all makes sense. And my heart broke. Now, I, I feel that this concept of treating and, and managing stress and the ill effects of stress causes to the body 
it's fairly new for all of us. Like within maybe the last few decades, uh, when you go to the doctor, they, they ask about stress levels now, which I don't remember that before, but this weathering concept and the effect on people of color, really on all marginalized people, it's a whole other level. I'd love yeah. for you to describe this. And weathering is um, a wonderful word for a terrible thing. And um, it means that if you are someone who is having to suffer from constant insults, even when you're trying really hard, and that's the part that sometimes I forget, it's like you're really trying hard to do a good job. Uh, Dr. Geronimus, who is at the University of Michigan, she calls it hard effort coping just trying to get by, but then things get in your way. People treat you badly. People say things that are unkind to you, or you're discriminated against by the police at your job or in housing. Each time that happens to you, it causes the fight or flight mechanism to kick in. So then something happens, you get really upset, You um, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, your, your body is flooded with stress hormones, your muscles tighten. This is fine in the, you know, like if you're really in danger, but if that happens over and over because of these constant insults, it causes your body to prematurely age. It shows up during pregnancy and childbirth, which is basically a stress test of the body. It really showed up during COVID when you saw Black people um, having earlier, uh, having worse symptoms that needed hospitalization or led to death 10 years before white people. So if the worst cases were at age 70 to 80 for white people, they were 60 to 70 for Black people. And it was interesting because I covered COVID for the New York Times Magazine. I covered racial health disparities in COVID. And the man I was in, the man died, but his wife, um, I interviewed her about him and he died. He was barely 50. Hmm. He died of COVID. And you were seeing, you know, this, this guy who was just like, really just trying to survive. And it was sad, but I just thought of that. I was like, how oh, he was so young um, because most of the cases remember early on were in older people. And so then that's when Dr. Geronimus got more, much more widely believed and um, really her concept of weathering is being held up. She got a, she wrote a book three months ago. I don't think she was even thinking about writing a book the first time I met her three years ago. I mean, it's, it's a lifetime of othering um, that I can only imagine would always put you in that, that almost anxiety state. Yeah. And uh, and like I said, I think we're just slowly starting to understand what, what any amount of stress does to the body. And you do talk about uh, a lot about uh, childbirth and, and this preeclampsia. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it. I have my mother's, my mother's going to be like, how do you not know that word? You um, not me. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but this high blood pressure that leads to hemorrhaging during childbirth it just makes sense that that constant stress plus the the lack of of loving care that a lot of these women are receiving in the hospital yeah it that was the the moment where i'm like this is this this changes everything 
Well, I thought of preeclampsia recently. We all did because of the athlete Tori Bowie. So Tori Bowie was a 2016 Olympian. There were she was on the four by 100 meter relay team, and she passed away from preeclampsia, and her baby died too a few months ago. And then she was in a very bad situation, but her teammate Allison Felix also had preeclampsia, and and she she was really healthy. She was doing everything right with her pregnancy. She um, had preeclampsia, turned into a near tragic um, birth. And then what was sad about it was at initially she blamed herself. She thought this must be something I am doing wrong. Without the, you know, without the the framework of society and our the way we live, things happen to our bodies. Um, if you are having to deal with hard effort coping or racism or marginalization, that isn't your fault. You mm. are doing the best you can. And that's what kind of breaks my heart is that when people blame themselves for something that is not your individual fault. Well, and then, then how much does the individual realize that that's what they're, that, that that's the effect that it's happening to their body? Right. You, you write about mental health as well, um, writing that only 33% of African-Americans struggling with mental illness receive treatment. And, and taking this weathering concept into account, like I imagine that would only exacerbate the challenges experienced with mental illness. That's right. And I think that we are now seeing, I mean, you know, I wrote that book a couple of years ago when I was really writing it, you know, it was published last year and published in paperback recently. But um, I think it's obviously gotten worse because there's so much discussion of mental health. When I look at the race part of it, it has always been hard for us because of the stereotype of strong, us being strong. If you're a woman, you're supposed to be strong. Black woman, there's a, actually a term, strong black woman. Um, so then you shouldn't need to seek therapy if you need, or you shouldn't have any kind of mental health problems. You should be able to just, you know, power through. If you're a man, you add the idea of masculinity. So now you're really not wanting to admit vulnerability. And so it keeps us out of the mental health care system. I think now it's really hard to get a therapist in the first place because so many, now there's a shortage, but there's a real shortage of black therapists. There always have been black therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, um, long, there's a shortage of black healthcare providers in general, but especially in the mental health field. So it's hard to get someone who understands your where you're coming from, your situation. My, It's funny, from a personal note, my therapist is white. So, you know, I'm like, oh gosh, I really like her, but I'm going to have to explain everything. And then we were on Zoom when we first started and I saw uh, some Black people walking by <laughs> in back of the camera and she has Black children. And then I realized, oh, this, I won't have to do this. And, um, you know, it, so I didn't necessarily get a Black provider, but I got someone who understands my experience. So I feel comfortable sharing and healing. That's something you talk about, this need for representation and recognition in, in the, the healthcare world. And it really seems like, I mean, and I guess this is the true with every problem, that it's the young people that are going to be the solution. Um, you talk a lot about um, 
students in universities and in medical programs, like demanding change and demanding um, re-examination of, of how things are done. And it really just feels like that's the that that's our hope that we're, we're always going to be hoping and holding on to the, those young people. I love that. I love the blossoming and flowering of medical students who want to be different kinds of doctors, nurses, midwives, public health people who are learning about um, health justice and birth justice, who want to know more, who want to be able to listen to patients and hear patients and not just look at them as bodies. Um, and I've seen that all across the country when traveling around for the book. I also want to add that I love activism that's intergenerational as well. Um, there's been some, I was with an environmental justice group working on a story and I was loving how many of the people from the community were older and their lived experience reflected the issue that they were um, you know, sort of rallying against, but they were mixing it up with college students um, from, you know, fancy colleges and everybody was kind of getting along. And I re remember going to the little community dance and it was like the oldies dance party and all the college kids are dancing with the old older folks and they're all rallying around a common cause. And um, so I love activism of all kinds, but intergenerational activism is really fun and important. You know, speaking of environmental justice, I had the the extreme privilege of uh, talking with Robert Bullard for this same podcast a few years back. And you, you talk about him in the book, in, in your section about where you live being a factor on your health. And, and he told me that two neighboring zip codes, two different zip codes, depending on who lives there, the kinds of investments, infrastructure that have been placed in those neighborhoods, that the differential in life expectancy can be as great as 10 to 15 years in these two neighboring, that the zip code and where you live is one of the strongest determinants for your life expectancy. That is really interesting and true. Two things. One, uh, Dr. Bullard is very funny. I said to him, you know, you've written so many books. They all have really great titles. Are they actually the same book? <laughs> and he said, well, I just kind of say it in a different way and I call it something else, but I just am going to keep beating this drum until somebody listens to me. Um, my mother is from Chicago. And my grandparents and all my aunts and uncles came up from Mississippi to Inglewood, that community in Chicago. And um, people to this day in that neighborhood live to age 60. And then nine miles north, they live to age 90. So my mom and I, a few years ago, went back to that community and saw that it was in such dire condition. And then we looked in the history of it and it had been redlined. So that meant that people people coming up from the South, 500,000 people came to Chicago um, from the South, Black people, and during the Great Migration, but they couldn't buy a home. A home is your biggest wealth asset. So then, but the, what they could do is buy a home for a higher price on a contract, which meant that they could never outright own that home. They, If they missed a payment, they could lose it. My grandfather bought, my mother explained, his house, their house on a contract. And that sapped away something like $3 billion from Black Chicagoans. But that meant, now I could see when I go back to that neighborhood of Inglewood and people living to, uh, 
only to age 60, with so much wealth sapped away from it, it made sense that people live shorter lives. And it also had some of the worst COVID outcomes in the city of Chicago, in those Black communities that were historically segregated and redlined. And also the targeting of those communities for uh, waste treatment and um, dumps, as if, you know, as, as Dr. Bullard uh started his career fighting against city dumping dumps. in Dixie, one yeah. of his one of those uh, times. Well, he told that one that really interesting story of when there was a in Houston, there was a middle class community and they there was building going on. They saw construction machines coming in and out and they nobody said anything. So they thought it was a shopping mall and it was really like I think it was a dump or an incinerator or something. It was something polluting. But they put it next to this community, black community. Mm-hmm. And I remember he was saying that it was the, I think it was a dump because trucks were going in and out. It was near a school. So the kids, the noise in it's much less the pollution, but the noise and also the smell because Houston's so hot. And if they, when they opened the windows, they could smell this toxic, you know, place, but they chose to do it by a community that had less power than other communities. And so if you keep doing that, then you can see that it would lead to different life, differing life expectancies. What is the importance for you to include all of these lived stories of individuals in this book rather than just facts and dates and history? Well, I think what I try to do is... Um, I used to say, give people dessert with their broccoli, but I love broccoli, so it's not a negative. So I tried to mix it up so that people, I think you get you get bored if you're just reading numbers and I'm just going blah, blah, according to this, that, and the other. But if you are reading and are consuming the stories of people that are relatable to you, it's more believable. I think it was Dr. Maya Angelou who said you can, it's always better to, you can, you can say something to a person and have them listen, but it's better to make them feel. And so what I try to do is tell stories about through the lens and the eyes of real people so that other people can relate to them. And also honestly, I'm kind of good at that. Like I am, I love, I'm a numbers nerd and I'm like kind of sciencey, but what I really love to do is interview people. Then what happens to me as a writer is I sit down to write after doing all these fun interviews and talking to all these people. And then I was like, oh, right. I don't like this part. (laughs) This is hard. How to intersperse the stories of the wonderful people with the data that I also like, but it's like, oh, right. Writing is less, less fun than, than interviewing. And then having written and having published, really fun again. Well, it, it like you said, it does connect you, it draws you in, but then it just, it really shows you, you know, when you look at X number of people died or it, it it's not, it doesn't have that same effect of reading the story of a person's life and losing a child or losing, you know, a, a father or a husband or a wife and or just any of the experiences. Um, and it really allowed me to to connect uh, and see it as a human story, not just a a, a facts and figures uh, 
exploration. I also like to do that with my experts, like Dr. Geronimus, I told her story. You know, she is, you know, how she came up with the concept of weathering, how, what she, how, you know, each step, what she learned and I think, and what was her life like? And there was another gentleman that I interviewed. He gives me the end of the book, the last quote in the book. He's a cardiologist from New Orleans. And he talked about COVID and going to the Zulu parade, which I had written about and in, in 2020 was a place where a lot of black people got COVID in New Orleans from going to this really wonderful parade. And his thing was this, so many innocent people, why, why did this happen? But he talked about it from his lens of going to the parade when he was a little boy. But then later he talked about it from the, you know, lens of an expert, you know, a cardiologist who had written a really beautiful piece for the Journal of the American Medical Association about COVID health disparities. And so I really tried to get at why people go into this, this field in the first place, including Dr. Bullard and the story of his wife and how she was uh, the one who, you know, got him kind of into this. Yeah. As he said, yeah, he, he not dragged in, but like uh, the, oh, what was the word that he said? Accidental environmentalist. Yeah. Yes. But you also include your own personal stories as well. And, and really, I don't know if you knew that that was what you were going to do as you're putting this book together, but the your experience with childbirth and also your experience with your father, the, both very personal, but also exemplary of uh, everything that you're you're writing about i think well my father was treated very badly by the you know medical field um in when he was hospitalized he was restrained to the bed even though he was a kind very educated as a scientist um person he was a veteran he loved the country so to have him to see him treated that way was so painful and infused me with more passion for covering this topic. I think during the first pass of, I had my neighbor, who's a writer too, read the first pass of the book. It was kind of skeletal. And then she's so nice. And she said, you know, what's missing in this? And I said, no, because, you know, I had all the stories, I had all the facts. And they, she said a through line. And I said, well, it's chronological. And she said, you're missing. Hmm. Where were you? So, so like, we were saying at the beginning, I I also progressed throughout my career and learning about this. And once I added that through line, I had to go through and start and go, where was I here? What was I doing? What was, and then it, I could see it became better and it became easier to write the book because I was learning along the way and hadn't thought of it that way. I mean, it's super obvious now, but I hadn't thought, oh, here I was at Essence Magazine thinking the wrong thing. Here I was having a low birth weight baby. Here I was seeing my father mistreated horribly. Here I was learning about my mother um, and her community in Chicago and how, you know, people have such um, short lifespans. And so then it may, and then here I am covering COVID, you know, at the end um, in New Orleans. And so it really made a lot of sense. And, you know, as journalists, we're trained, we were back in the old days, not to do that. So it took a little bit of change, forcing myself to put myself in, but um, I think it paid off. If you would like to continue the conversation, visit chapman.edu slash Wilkinson to learn more. To access recommended books from our guests for further learning, and for more socially conscious content, 
visit us at pastforward.org or follow us at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you podcast.